And uh, welcome to another episode of Swing Thoughts. Good morning. It's uh, Howard Glassman, Tim uh, O'Connor. Tim O'Connor, the um, mental performance coach at uh, Glen Abbey. And now, the newly minted head coach of the University of Guelph Griffins. Is that a true story? It is, yeah. Amazing. Just announced this week. Um, Yeah, I'm really excited about it. It's it's fun. I've been with the team for two years as an assistant, and... um, Man, to be head coach, that's pretty cool. I'm, I'm uh, really excited about it. I'll tell you who I'm excited for. Is I'm excited for those kids. I tell you what, they're really, they're really in for a, a real treat. And congratulations uh, to you. Oh, thank you. Uh, from me, golf spiritual leader. <laughs> uh, as a spiritual leader, I look for opportunities uh, where where growth can happen. And, and I see and, and, I see. and bestowing your blessings. <laughs> and, and I appreciate that. Uh, this I program, do. as always, brought to you by TaylorMade. The number one driver in golf, still the M1, and of course, Clublink. And, uh, you know, there's a couple Clublink courses that have been open now for a couple weeks. Hidden Lake is open. There's another one. Uh, is it Rolling Hills? Rolling Hills. Rolling yeah, Hills is yeah. open. And uh, here in uh, Ontario, where we're broadcasting from uh, Toronto, there will be uh, dozens of courses open this weekend. Absolutely. Lionhead. You actually, yeah, you you had an invite to go play there. I'm playing there. No, actually, I was play, I was going to play there today. I'm playing at Royal Ontario tomorrow. Yeah, that's uh, Oakville. You, you know, it's funny. I've driven by it 500 times. But of course you have. It's, bit, it's, it's funny, but in eight months since I moved away from there, I had to actually go look it up. I'm like, where is that again? I'm like, oh, yeah, five minutes from where I used to live. Um, yeah. Of course, the uh, the program that I normally host is the Humble and Fred Show on Sirius XM. But today it's all golf nerd, uh, and uh, we couldn't be happier to uh, welcome our guest uh, today. Uh, I can hear him there. Judd, are you okay there, pal? <laughs> it's great to be here with both of you. Well, let me uh, give you a proper introduction then. I just I thought you had wandered away from your, your computer. Uh, he is the author of The Craving Mind. From Cigarettes to Smartphones to Love, Why We Get Hooked and How We Break Habits. He's a uh, psychiatrist and neuroscientist, the director of research and the Center for Mindfulness. That's right, Swing Thought uh, 100%ers. That's why we're talking to him. And that and so much more. Say hello to Dr. Judson Brewer. Hello, Judd. Hello. And we begin. And we do begin. So, um, Judson, um, you're a mountain biker, right? Yes. You've done. Have you played much golf in your life? Uh, not much. I remember sneaking onto a course in high school uh, with my grandfather's golf clubs and uh, getting kicked off, if that counts. Um, and I've played a little bit since then. Uh, and it's funny. I I worked a bit with the. Uh, women's golf team at Yale uh, when we were developing some of our uh, mindfulness training and some of our neurofeedback uh, work but haven't done you know um, that's been put on the side for a couple of years and we're actually coming back to uh, sports psychology now uh, with a vengeance cool well one of the things I wanted to connect with was I think that a lot of these things whether it's mountain biking or golf or a lot of different things maybe being a stand-up comic like my esteemed colleague for a lot of these things, we joke about them as you know an obsession and addictive. And I, I think that what really happens for golfers is they repeat behaviors that, that get in their way all the time. 
And I really think that that's the maddening part, is that we repeat these damn self-defeating behaviors. It's almost like we get hijacked and we repeat, repeat the cycle. Is that, how does that resonate for you? (laughs) Yes, that resonates pretty well. (laughs) It's crazy how we're literally getting in our own way. Yeah. Um, let me just, maybe we can back up a little and talk about your book and, and your research into mindfulness and what is it, what is it about? And I, I, I can kind of feel what Tim was getting at. What is it about our repetitive, uh, behaviors, whether it's smoking or, you know, in our case, you know, going and doing the same things over and over again in a game of golf. Let's talk a little bit about your research and what is it about mindfulness that can help people break bad habits? Yeah, I would start with understanding how our brains work. You know, that's that's the approach we've, we've taken. If we can understand how they work, we can then figure out ways to efficiently uh, kind of hack that code, if you want to think of it that way. This uh, So habits and much of our learning is through positive and negative reinforcements. Uh, this was probably set up uh, evolutionarily so we'd remember where food is. Uh, to put a use a simple example, if we, you know, if we see some nutritional source of food, like we see some berries, uh, we eat the berries, and that sends a signal to our brain that says, "Oh, calories, survival," and we learn one that these are edible, and two, where we found them. So it's context-dependent memory that gets laid down. A very, very old process. You know, this was this has been shown to be true from humans all the way back to the sea slug, which only has twenty thousand neurons. Uh, this approach, and then also avoid behavior. So, if there's danger, we learn to avoid danger so that we don't die. Uh, and in the same way, you know, this process is still at play in modern day. So, food is plentiful, yet our brains have have not out evolved uh, remembering where food is, which is probably a good thing. Uh, but so our brains, you know, they kind of get bored and they say, well, I can still use this process for something else. So, you know, if I'm stressed out, I'm going to eat some cupcakes and then I feel better. And so we start <laughs> co-opting this for habits that aren't so evolutionarily adaptive. So cupcakes, cigarettes, um, you know, yelling at people in traffic because it makes us feel better or throwing our golf clubs, you know, that's not going to that's not going to improve our handicap um <laughs> we're just going to have to buy more golf clubs and not a great habit mhm but the key one of the key things like that to me came out of your book is what we kind of call the the trigger the behavior and the reward can you mm-hmm. just take us through that yes so let's think of a simple example here so if the trigger is stress and our learned behavior is to eat chocolate or cupcakes uh, and the reward is that we feel a little bit better because we get that dopamine hit from the sugar uh, then that perpetuates itself every time we get stressed out and we eat chocolate we're reinforcing that habit loop well I, I want to ask uh, I want to get to cigarettes eventually because I have a couple I think I have a couple of thoughts that might be you know um, counter to your research but I want to get a little bit more into Let's let's leave cigarettes aside because what Tim asked you there, I think, is the perfect and you response. Your response is the perfect um, sort of setup for a bad habit. Let's talk about throwing clubs. You know, you get excited, you get angry, you throw a club, you release something, but and then and then so it builds a um, a habit of finding relief and release in that activity. Is that what you mean? 
Yes. Yeah, so besides releasing our grip on the club. <laughs> yes. It, but I, but it's funny how both those work. You release the the you release the golf club into the. Believe me, I've released some clubs. I have released, but you're also relieving and releasing a momentary buildup of tension, and it goes away. And so what your brain learns, if I'm uh, understanding you, is your brain learns that 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 habit of doing that gives you some. Wouldn't be pleasure, but it would be a relief from un- an uncomfortable situation. Yes, I think. So this is a really nice analogy, actually. So you know, if we had all the money in the world, I'm sure TaylorMade would be happy if we form this type of habit. Oh yeah, <laughs> because- yeah. yeah. TaylorMade we- would we- like us all to continue to break golf clubs. <laughs> but in reality, so think of this this grip and. Think of uh, anger or fear. It's like this gripping, Ugh, I can't believe I shanked that shot. Um, or, Ugh, I, I did that. it again. <laughs> and it just gets more and more contracted. And so literally we throw a club and we there's this momentary release. Like, oh, at least, at least I have control over something. Yeah. <laughs> and hopefully I didn't hit anybody. Um, with that, it's a temporary, temporary relief or release. And so I think we can really break it down to this contraction versus expansion. If you want to put it in binary terms, we get contracted around fear and anger and frustration. And we train ourselves, oh, you can feel better for a split second um, by throwing your club. And then, you know, as we watch our club sail and hope, you know, then start to contract around, oh, God, who am I going to hit with it? Right. but really what this is, this is the crux of the matter is this contraction versus expansion. And that's actually what mindfulness training is all about, I would argue. Well, I'll ask you to expand on that because I think <laughs> that the, it's – so what you're talking about is that is it becoming more aware that we're triggered and we feel the behavior coming up and then being able to go, oh, I'm getting sucked into this again. Um, is, are you talking about awareness of being able to, to – respond rather than react at that moment i i would say that comes later so that's that's a more mature response Thank you. i would say it, it starts with it's reward-based learning right so this is based on rewards if we can see clearly what our rewards are we start to become disenchanted with them. So mm. if we if we throw our club and we hit somebody, that's not actually that rewarding. No, We're no, like, it's not. Especially I for the should... person you get you get that gets hit. Yeah, yeah. So we learn, oh, that's not a good idea pretty quickly. So fortunately most of us don't hit people when we throw our clubs. But if we, you know, bend it around a tree, then we learn, oh man, I have to buy a new golf club. Maybe I shouldn't do that again. Um, but even if we don't mangle our club or hit somebody, that immediate relief that comes from that, it doesn't actually fix the problem. So if we can really see that clearly and, and see that we're, you know, we've embarrassed ourselves or we haven't actually made our shot better, um, that helps us recalibrate our brains to say, you know what, next time you're thinking about throwing your club, look at look at the actual consequence. What's what's the actual reward that you get? So. There, we start to recalibrate so that we can then re- respond rather than react. If you talk, as you mentioned, so that before we throw the club, we can we can stop that behavior, and then we can move into more skillful responses. Well, and I, I'll, I would yeah. ask you, like, if you don't if you don't have someone like Tim, who's a mental performance coach, and if you don't have a uh, desire for mindfulness, 
What what what? Where in the continuum of all those trigger and responses? And it, how does a person just spontaneously go? You know what? I've decided today is the last day. I'm going to wrap this club around a tree. What is the intervention? And I guess a two part question: What's the intervention? And and how does the intervention come from inside out? If you don't have, if you don't decide on your own, you know, how do you do this on your own? I guess is what I'm asking. Yeah. If there's not awareness of the consequences of the behavior, you know, the reward, then right. we're never going to change behavior. So if we're not aware that, you know, we're keep, we have to keep buying new golf clubs and that's not a pain point for us, you know, then we're not going to look for pain relievers. So until we see clearly how painful these behaviors are, we're not going to change them. I'll, okay. I'll, give you an, I'll give you an example with smoking, for example. Uh, so we've worked a lot with helping people quit smoking. We've done in-person studies with mindfulness training where we have five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment. Uh, we even have uh, app-based training now that helps people quit smoking with this app called Craving to Quit. But the idea is we start with basically rubbing their face in the behavior. As in, mm. we say, go ahead and smoke, but just pay attention when you smoke. And what people learn very quickly, and it's amazing to watch this because we've had people, you know, smoke for 40 years and they open their eyes with this wide eyed wonder and say, how did I never notice this before? <laughs> and what they're noticing is that smoking doesn't taste very good. And one of the first things that they point out is they're like, oh, burning in my lungs. I'm actually sending and it's actually superheated air <laughs> when you smoke a cigarette. They're literally paying attention to the fact that they're burning their wind, their their airway, mm. and that's not pleasant. Right. But they've never paid attention to it before. So imagine smoking 20 cigarettes a day. You know, say five to six puffs at a minimum if you smoke the whole cigarette, uh, times 30 years. So that's you know six puffs times 20 times 365 times 30. That's a big number that people have not paid attention to the reward. So there's this this awakening that happens literally pretty quickly for a lot of people where they're like, wow, this is not very good. And that starts to recalibrate the whole process in the first place where they now they now clearly have a very strong pain point. Does that make sense? It does. And, and what the connection I wanted to make back to like throwing a club or having some kind of reaction on the golf course, like just you know, really swearing or, or getting mad or sulking. I mean, any kind of reaction. I think what you're talking about here is that if you engage in the behavior, that what you really become aware of is, oh, I just threw the club. I feel like I could freaking punch somebody. There's electricity surging through my body. Um, I just feel terrible. Is that, is that really what you're talking about? Is like really becoming aware of your experience in that moment? Ding, 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 ding. Okay. Yes. All right. So mindfulness, I, 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 I do want to take some time for cigarette smoking because I was a cigarette smoker for a very, very long time. And I've done a lot of thinking about it. And I've, I've, I've used a particular method that you've probably heard of if you've done as much research as uh, I know you have. It's called Alan Carr's Easy Way to Stop Smoking. Yes. Um, are you aware of it? I'm aware of it. I'm not super familiar with well, ev it's, everything, it's, it's similar but it's pretty to, similar. It's yeah, similar, that's what people tell me. It, it is similar in uh, a lot of what you're talking about, which is coming awake, or yeah. as we the expression I love these days is coming online oh, with yes. the idea that, oh, I've been doing this for a long time, and it's probably uh, not very good for me. The problem with cigarette smokers and any addicts, whether it's a 
a drug or um, addicted to, uh, you know, aberrant behavior. But with cigarettes in particular, it's the actual nicotine addiction, which is what Alan Carr uh, talks a lot about, which is, yes, you can be aware of this habitual behavior, but at the center of it all, you have to notice that you're addicted to nicotine. And it's the nicotine addiction that creates the behavior and the habits. He would say, and I'll just finish this, uh, Dr. Judd. Um, do friends call you Judd or Judd? Just all, is it always Judson? Uh, Judd or Judson. I like it. Yeah, my mom says Judson when I'm in trouble. Yeah, so. yeah, of course yeah. she so does. It's, it's funny because my mom says Judson when I'm in trouble, which is <laughs> very off-putting. Um, but doctor, but I just love the I love the dichotomy of Doctor Judd. It's uh, it's both uh, brilliant and homespun. Oh, aren't you from Missouri? I grew up in Indiana. Oh, Indiana. Well, there well, you go. I don't know, Middle America. There <laughs> so, you go. Doctor yes. Judd, never mind. Why uh, Everland is. Coasters, yeah, I'm, it, yes. I'm, I'm, and I'm going to tell you, I'm 57 years old, and I'm 45 seconds removed from what point I was trying to make. So just give me a second. So, sure. um, what I was going to say is, at the at the basics, the basis of cigarette smoking, according to I'm just giving you the Alan Carr Cole's notes, which is, you need to understand that it's the nicotine addiction that creates the behavior that is not a habit, and you got into the habit of smoking cigarettes because you were addicted to nicotine. What say ye, Dr. Judd? I, I say, yes, cigarettes release dopamine, and they cause dopamine release in the brain, and that's the habit-forming molecule, if you want to think of it that way. It's, it's uh, associated with reward-based learning in every... A drug that's every addictive drug that's known to man, uh, from cocaine to heroin to alcohol, et cetera. So yes, that does form the habit. And here, here's the funny part: is that plants, from an evolutionary standpoint, uh, nicotine is actually a toxin. It's very toxic. If you injected uh, nic- straight up nicotine into your blood, it, it would <laughs> the lethal lethal dose fifty, as they say, that would kill fifty percent of people is pretty low. Yeah. So this was developed as an evolutionarily adaptive strategy for plants, which is also why humans, when they first smoke a cigarette, they tend to feel nauseated because their body's saying, dude, this is poison. <laughs> that's right. Well, that's part of what Carr says. He's like, you, he reminds you that it, it took quite a bit of effort to get hooked on nicotine because the first, and that's what the problem is. Most people smoke it and think there's no way I could get addicted. I, could, I can't keep doing these. These are ridiculous. Yeah. And yet we do. Yeah. Yes. So th- that's where the the system gets hijacked. If we keep overriding our natural uh, inclinations to say, don't do this, this is toxic, you know, whether it's peer pressure. Uh, and that's often the case, you know, in, you know, I, the average age of onset for uh, smoking in our smoking trial, I think, was 13 years of age. Yep. So uh-huh. not... Not exactly the mature mind. You know, this yeah. is right at the the early adolescence where there's a lot of peer pressure, a lot of awkwardness. That was probably the the peak of my awkwardness <laughs> in life, and so there you were really susceptible to not only forming new habits but also to uh, to peer pressure. And so I think that's where a lot of the the problem begins. And you know, that was one of the uh, evil geniuses of the nicotine industry was mm-hmm. to get. Uh, kids addicted. Uh, they they didn't really. Well, I'll just stop there. Um, so if we know that, and we know that that's how it it starts, 
and how it often gets perpetuated, especially once we become physiologically dependent. Uh, that's a negative reinforcement process. You know, we the nicotine levels go low in our blood. Our brain says this is uncomfortable, make it go away. We say, don't worry, I'll smoke a cigarette. We smoke a cigarette, we feel better. But the irony here is it's only bringing us back to baseline at this point. We're not right. actually feeling good from it. We're just feeling less bad from our nicotine withdrawal. And that's also why the first cigarette of the morning is the toughest one to kick. You know, it's interesting. That's almost and, – and I, and I invite you because I, 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 I've been interested in this cigarette conundrum for a long time. And that what you just said about coming back to baseline is literally – sort of the basics of the Alan Carr method, which is once you get your head around the fact that you're not really getting anything from it, all you're doing is returning to the same level uh, that you had prior to smoking cigarettes, uh, you know, at age 12. It just brings you back to normal. The problem with cigarettes is as time goes on, like any drug, you build this tolerance to it so you need more and more of it and you almost never get back to baseline. You're always just a little bit Mm. under it, which is why 20-year-old smokers do five a day and 50-year-old smokers do 35 a day. Yes, and I'm not sure it's that clear-cut, but the, the idea is, is true, absolutely. Where it's interesting, though, is when people are trying to quit smoking, and, and again, I, I, um, I'm, fortunately, there aren't nearly as many smokers today as there were, but there seems to be a hardcore subset, at least in the U.S., of about 20% of the population, so it's still pretty prevalent. Uh, but it would be we can certainly talk about other other habits that are uh, that might be even more relevant to folks today. Uh, but just to finish the you know this thought around this, below about so the half life of nicotine is two to four hours depending on our physiology and our liver enzymes. And once we get below um, you know below ten and certainly below five cigarettes a day, there's actually no physiologic dependence because mm. we can't keep our nicotine levels high enough to keep those receptors, you know, uh, upregulated. Basically, you know, to keep to to have that brain scream that says there's not enough nicotine in my blood because there's not enough to get us dependent. So, the the psychological dependence is the is the piece that people really struggle with when they get below five cigarettes because it's not physiologic at that point, and that's where. Uh, you know, it moves beyond the, you know, that just getting back to baseline. It, it's more uh, related to the, the that urge that comes from a trigger, uh, the psychological cue. And we've, mm-hmm. we've even seen this in the literature where, you know, the nicotine lozenges and the, uh, the other uh, pharmacologic treatments don't actually target or treat psychologically induced cravings because – that's not what they're designed for. They're designed for the nicotine receptor. Yeah, there's yeah. just a nicotine delivery system. Yeah, well, yeah. Um, so I can remind uh, our listeners, we're, uh, we're talking to Dr. Judson Brewer. He's the author of The Craving Mind, From Cigarettes to Smartphones to Love, Why We Get Hooked and How We Can Break Bad Habits. So, so Dr. Judd, when you're talking about uh, cigarettes, there's a lot of connections you can make to golf in terms of, you know, you're saying psychological dependence and you know just just behaviors that we repeat 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 even though we don't like them and uh one of the reasons why i was looking forward to, to speaking you to speaking to you today was when i listened to you on uh, you were on dan harris's podcast 10 percent happier and i'm driving along and you're talking about trigger behavior and reward and it made me think uh that this is what golfers do 
And so I'm going to take you through a scenario that I think a lot of us do um, all the time. And that is a golfer will be going along pretty well with his game, his or her game. And then the, he won't be playing so well. Thus begins, there's the triggers. Like, oh, I'm not playing well. And so thus they begin the search. And so they find, you know, what's going on with my golf swing. So they'll, they'll seek information uh, maybe online, uh, maybe go through the catalog of thoughts that they've had in their heads. And then they'll finally find something, and that'll be like the reward. And, and then they'll – so they'll go out in the next game thinking, okay, I'm going to break 90 today or I'm going to break 80. But then – it's, you know, two or three holes in, there's some emotional pressure, and it's back, it's, they've lost it. And then they're back into this cycle again. And mm. it just seems to be this repeating cycle that happens to golfers all the time. Trigger, behavior, reward, and they're stuck in it. How does that, yes. how's that sound? Looking for love in all the wrong places. <laughs> yes. So if we're constantly looking outside of ourselves to try to fix something, that's actually not broken in the first place and we're you know we're standing there breaking it and then trying to look for something to fix it uh we're never (laughs) we're never going to solve the problem so we're going to be constantly looking for a better club or a better technique or a better coach uh when in reality you know it goes back to this contraction and expansion thing that we talked about at the beginning if i'm going out in order to shoot an 80 or below or Shoot, that's not the right. What, how, what do you call it? Uh, anyway, break we, to, yeah, you got it. Yeah, to break eighty. Um, that's an in order to. So this is based on extrinsic rewards. So if the trigger, like you, you pointed it out very nicely. You know, the trigger is this thought that says, "I'm going to break 80. The behavior is, "We're on our way to eighty, and then we break eighty, and the reward says, "Yeah, I'm, I'm killing it. I'm ripping it up today." Um, I'm sure that's how golfers think, right? I'm it's ripping exactly, it up. I, that's almost word for word how golfers think. I'm ripping it up. You are ripping it up, Doctor Judd. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so that's so, so keep zone. going. Yeah. So then we we set this expectation again, external reward. Oh, I shot under eighty, and so I'm gonna. That feels good. I'm gonna go do that again, and then we are on track to not do that, and then it, you know it's the death spiral where right. we start thinking, oh no, I'm never gonna do it, and that thought, that stinking thinking, as we talk about in in Alcoholics Anonymous, is is what actually causes the problem as compared to magically our swing is off. You know, it's not like suddenly we've unlearned everything that we learned before. It's just that we're getting in our own way in that sense. Um, so go ahead. Go ahead. Well, so think of it in terms of so that that extrinsic motivator is, you know, it's it's a time a ticking time bomb because it, it, it at any one moment we can start getting getting contracted and boy you know i haven't played much golf but being contracted and and worried is not going to help me shoot my best game so what if instead we turn toward intrinsic motivators like just going out there to have fun you know and when i go out to play sports and just to have fun it's it's a completely different game it's actually play I mean, isn't that that in the name? Let's go play a game of golf. It's not let's go shoot under 80. So we move into the intrinsic reward territory rather than the extrinsic. And that actually, ironically, we get the, you know, the byproduct of shooting a good score rather than um, and, you know, I said the byproduct comes from the intrinsic 
motivator and the intrinsic reward of just having fun. Sounds like a blog I Well, I was just going to say, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, Tim, we, a lot of what Tim and I talk about separately, together, on this show, in our practice, uh, is intention. And what's, what, what you just described is very similar to what Tim's uh, latest blog at uh, Tim O'Connor, O'ConnorGolf.ca. But it's also a, a, a lot of what we talk about, and halfway through you, uh, you explaining that, I wrote down intentions. And so what you've described is, is, is similar to, you know, you, you can go out and, and in your intention is to have uh, a great time. And if you happen to shoot your good score or not, it's not dependent. Your, your behavior around your experience isn't dependent on the number uh, that you have in the scorecard. And whatever that scorecard is, whether the scorecard is a great relationship, if that scorecard is building a better life or that scorecard is, you know, playing a better game of golf. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an extrinsic motivator. Right. Yeah. And, and, and what we talk a lot about in the mental performance part of the game is is being aware of what your intentions day by day are. In fact, Timmy's latest blog is about a similar situation with, you know, him and I and uh, fans of the show or friends of the show will remember that sometimes just reconfiguring and resetting your intention uh, for a game or for a tournament or for an experience always changes the experience and mostly in a positive way. Yeah, so you tell me this, uh, in going back to the contraction versus expansion, when you reconfigure that, does it feel contracted or, or more expanded at that moment? Completely more expanded. It gives you There the, you go. It gives you limitless possibilities, mm-hmm. uh, whereas if I don't break 80, the I, I'm going to be angry is only one outcome. Yeah. Yeah, and we even have – the nice thing about my lab is we can do neuroimaging research and actually pinpoint brain regions and networks that correspond to this contracted versus expanded state. Uh, so there's even neuroscience behind what you're describing. But ultimately, cool. I mean, cool. to me, the neuroscience just confirms what we already know from our own wisdom. <laughs> yeah, well, to me, it's like um, when when I'm in that expanded state, if you will, let's say, um, you know, I, I'm expressing gratitude for being out there that day or just enjoying the environment and the people I'm playing with, I'm not only more connected to them, I'm connected to the course, I'm connected to the weather, and and I'm also, now I can really read, I'm outside of myself, so now I can really read what's going on, say, you know, in, in the green, I can see the break a little bit better because I'm outside of myself, whereas golfers... So much what we do is get stuck in our heads and thinking, you know, am I swinging this the right way? Uh, you know, what if I bogey this hole? I, you know, I'm not going to break 90 today. Well, so, what you just you, described, though, is all it's what uh, Dr. Judd was saying. All of that is exactly. contraction. Exactly. Yeah. You, you, you start to feed in on yourself and there's no room for noticing and for expanding, which usually brings at least a better experience, if not better results. So let's take this up a notch then. Are yeah. you ready? Let's do that. All right. So buckle your seatbelt. If you think of that. Here comes the deep water. <laughs> <laughs> so if we, the way you're describing this is beautiful because if we take that contraction and we ask the existential question, you know, from a, from a very pragmatic and, and experiential standpoint, what separates me from the rest of the world? 
Well, that contraction lets me know where I begin and where the rest of the world ends, right? And so when we get, you know, we get all contracted into a ball of fury, or I think of it as like, you know, so contracted down to this neutron star of anger, um, we're, we're pretty clear and then people around us are pretty clear on where and who we are. Yeah. So in that sense, if you take the opposite of that and you take that expanded quality that you're describing, that connection where you start to connect with the course, with the environment, with the people you're playing with, and you take that expansion out to infinity, this is where we get into what Mihai Csikszentmihalyi describes as flow, where there's no sense of self because there's no boundary. Like where do you end and where does the rest of the world begin? It's just yes. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like you said. It's very existential. But when you're in that place of flow, there's no evaluation. There's right. no judgment. There's just being in the experience. And it's like as you talked about in your book, you know, you're working on something five hours later. Holy crap, it's dark outside. Mm-hmm. And, and like what a beautiful st- – that's when, that's when creativity happens, whether you're an artist, you're uh, you know, I think a salesperson or you're a golfer. It's when you're in that space of expansion that the magic can really happen. Yes. And the nice thing about this is we can train ourselves to move in this direction at any, any one time. We can even be constantly checking to see, you know, in this moment, am I more contracted or am I expanded? And what are the conditions that support expansion? So, for example, let's – okay, let's get concrete here. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I'm going to give you two choices, contracted or expanded, okay? And you just say which bucket does this fall into. Ready? Okay. Your, your do you own want us to have? Do you want us to have our hands on our buzzers or should we just <laughs> – I'll make a squeak sound. He makes like a rattle. I don't I've, know. I've got sound effects. Anyway, go ahead, sir. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so fear, contracted or expanded? Contracted. Contracted. Okay. Uh, joy, contracted or expanded? It's expanded. Okay. Uh, just a little more difficult. Anger, contracted or expanded? Contracted. Contracted. Okay. Uh, curiosity, contracted or expanded? Expanded. But I read your book. I cheated. Yeah. I, I haven't read the book, but I watched your TED talk. So, okay. uh, I would say curiosity is the uh, is step one of expansion. Yeah, I, and I, I, that's a nice way to put it. Wow. It's step one, and and in our own experience, uh, here's a good example. It, it, think about your eyes. So, if you're angry, are your eyes open wide, or are they kind of narrowly closed down? Like they're contracted. Yeah, they're slit like these slits. Don't give us know. the easy ones, Doctor Judd. We're we're evolved. We're okay. Canadian. We know these things. Okay, pop quiz, hot shot. All right. <laughs> Excitement. Expanded. Uh, I would say uh, bordering on contraction. Yes. So. <laughs> Ooh, Tim got a good one there. <laughs> well, okay, but but why? Joy why, and fear. Why, Joy and fear. But why excitement? I guess I guess I my knee jerk so, reaction would say that would be expansion. But excitement, I guess, could also be you're in a state of excitement, not not necessarily a joyous one. Yes, so just an excited contrast. state. Yeah. Let's, mm-hmm. So if you look at joy versus excitement, excitement has this restless quality to it because it says I'm about to get something. It's mm-hmm. anticipating the future or it says, I just got something. So it's not actually present moment centered. It's based on a reward that we just got or a reward that we're anticipating, this yes. restless quality. And restlessness itself, d- does that feel good? No. No. No, it doesn't, Dr. Judd. It's uh, uncomfortable. What about, 
What about joy? Is joy restless? No. No. There you go. So that's the difference. And that's the biggest uh, the hang up that people have. That's not the best word. No, no, I I understand. But the, the mistake that people make is that they haven't looked carefully at excitement. And excitement is something that's a constant driver. It says, I want more, I want more, I want more. Go ride the roller coaster again. You know, go shoot another great game. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas Joy just says, well, that was fun. Um, I'm going to offer you two. Uh, by the way, uh, we're, we've only got a few more minutes with uh, Dr. Judson Brewer. He is the author of The Craving Mind and uh, a fascinating experience. We certainly appreciate you being on our show today. It has been a joyous uh, expanding uh, thing. We, we've, I think we're having a lovely time. How do yeah, you feel? Yeah, and I'd like to suggest we do this another time, too. Are you, we, are you, can we come you hang excited? out with you at Yale? <laughs> are you excited to do more, or are you just happy that we're having a good time? Well, <laughs> Here's what I want to offer you We're basking in happiness. So um, I, I don't want to go into uh, you know my golf credentials or whatever, but one of the things that Tim mentioned to you, and I'm not sure if you heard, is I'm also a stand-up comic, and I've been doing stand-up for many, many years. But as an older stand-up comic now, I've I've had some... Some learning and some revelations around intention. And, and part of this began with my association with Tim and has continued in my own um, uh, interest and, and uh, reading. And I, would, I just want to offer a great example. So I, I went on stage last night. I was at a fundraiser, a couple hundred and fifty people. I was one of the feature performers. And I was really excited, as I often am, before I go on stage. And it's a very... If you ever want to know, and I know I, you've, you've done some, obviously, some work in front of people, but if you ever want to really put yourself under pressure, uh, you go up and, you know, standing up in front of people for any reason is a very heightened, uh, uh, in what I was, it's an unnatural state for yeah. most people, right? Yeah, often feared as much as death. It's the, it's the most <laughs> exactly. feared. And I'm going to tell you, that's public speaking. Now, take that up times 100 for stand-up because you've only got a very narrow window to make it work or not. And the thing yeah. is, whether you're Jerry Seinfeld or Howard Glassman, it's always, it's always work to, to – you, can, you can't uh, take it for granted. There's no walking out and you, you're never handed it. Is, does it. Does that make sense? Yeah, people have paid – for you to make them laugh. But it's, That's a high expectation. It's a high mm-hmm. expectation. And what I said to Tim today is, yeah, you know, we're talking about how my show went last night. And I said, by most people's standards, it went very well. I mean, I got lots of laughs and everyone was happy, blah, blah, blah. But by my standards of intention, I didn't do as well as I'd like to because my intention wasn't on them, which is what I say to myself before I usually walk out. My intention last night was very me-focused. And what I mean by that is I wasn't feeling a lot of joy up there. It was more kind of going through the motions. And even though I did well, I, went, I drove home. I was about an hour from here. And on the way home, I thought, you know, what, what didn't feel good about last night? And I realized the old thing that comes up. When I'm inwardly focused, what am I going to say? Usually when I'm working on new material, I have nights like last night where I'm trying to remember what the words are as opposed to going... Because usually my intention, you're going to love this, is if you're in, if my intention is making sure they have a good time, my <laughs> my joy comes from are they enjoying it, and when you're focused on them, it takes some of the focus off your ego. Yes. And last yes. night there was a fifty fifty struggle. There were some moments of joy, but there were some moments where I could just feel myself contracting. 
Mm. Physiologically, my mouth wasn't working as well as it can. I had to drink a lot of water, which is another sign to me that I'm, I'm really not clicking. And not yeah. clicking is usually because I'm not focused on, you know, what's the mood right now? Yeah. What's yeah. the reaction right now as opposed to, okay, what's next? What's this next thing I'm going to do that's going to make them laugh? Response, right. sir? Oh, that's a great example. You know, I actually wrote a book about that, I think. Uh, <laughs> that's how you know the, you're talking to a smart guy. He can't remember uh, how many books he's written about stuff. Yeah, so the idea – I mean you're, you're describing this beautifully and there's a, a teacher that used to uh, – that the saying is your me is in the way. Right. <laughs> <laughs> your me is in the way. And it's beautiful where you know, you're talking about the – thinking about the next thing mm-hmm. as compared to what's happening right now and what is called for. Right. What's my relationship with the audience and how can we groove this and not in a way that I have to, you know, but it's rather just a sense of being rather than doing. Like you're being here with the audience, just feeling it as compared to I have to do something to make them laugh. The doing comes as a spontaneous act that from your, you know, from you training to do it. It's not like that suddenly I could become a stand-up comedian. That, that I'm pretty sure that wouldn't work so well. So you've trained yourself to do it. It's just a matter of being in those moments so that you can let that natural uh, energy flow. And it's a, it's a connected energy between you and the audience, I imagine. Well, and that's exactly, um, you know, and it's funny because I, I could tell, you know, it was, it was just the perfect situation last night. It should have been a, a very joyous experience, and parts of it were. But the part, the part of me that analyzes it, I can, and, and, and I'll tell you what, at 57, I know this. At 37 and 27, I didn't get it. But what I get now is um, I didn't do poorly. I just, didn't, I just didn't get out of my own way enough. Yes. Yes. And, that's and now you know. So you've, I, I think of these situations – as you know, there's somebody. It was actually, I think, I was on a uh, show with Mike Gervais, who's this uh, the psycho- uh, the mindfulness coach for the Seattle Seahawks, and we were talking. You know, he's like, w- w- "What about when you fail?" And I'm, I was, I was really baffled because I, I have this, I guess, a habit now. It's like, well, anytime I trip up. It's like, oh, here's an opportunity to learn something. And so I bow to anything that I quote unquote failed at as a teacher. And so it's uh, it's really interesting because it's like, oh, wow, here's an opportunity for learning. Um, and maybe because curiosity is, has become so rewarding for me, it's like, oh, wow, look, here's something different. This didn't meet expectations. Right. What can I learn from this? And so, you know, it's really interesting. It's like, okay. You know, where did you get in your own way? How can you, in those moments, step back and and learn from it? Now, I'll give you it. So, here's yeah, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. But you're you're speaking. This is the swing thoughts canon. What can we learn? Yeah. <laughs> so go ahead. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, um, I I gave a a talk at TED Med to a, a not the happiest crowd. You know, they don't give them drinks ahead of time. <laughs> 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 That's the first bad sign. Wait a second. The audience is completely sober. This is not going to be good. Sober, and they spend thousands of dollars to attend this conference. Yikes. So uh, I got up on stage, and uh, it was so funny because <laughs> it's funny now. Um, after my 
opening part, I totally choked. And I remember thinking, oh, wow, I can't believe I'm choking at like the biggest moment in my life. I didn't, wow, that's really interesting. And then, <laughs> and, and then I, you know, a couple of, you know, I don't know how long it was, but it felt like a long time, obviously. I finally, like my thumb hit the clicker and I went on to my next slide and then it, you know, it, it went on. And I remember, um, you know, and the talk went fine. It was actually, I was surprised to hear did. that it was, it was the fourth most watched TED Talk of 2016. So they obviously can edit that piece out. Uh, but that was a great moment where like I was in the middle of that and I was like, oh, wow, isn't this interesting as compared to, oh, my God, I'm choking. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, it's kind of like what we we've talked about uh, in recent shows is the is the being with, you know, this is happening. OK, I'm all, you know, it, it's happening. I'm not running away, escaping it. And there's, so there's so many things that connect. You know, we've been talking about stand up. We've been talking about you giving your chat. But in golf, so much I think of what how golfers struggle is the ego. And the thinking and all the self-referencing that go, goes yes. on, like we were talking about, how am I doing at this moment? You, you're standing on the stage and you're going, oh, I'm choking. You're self-referencing big time. And one of the things that I found really interesting in your book is you talked about how, how the, uh, the prefrontal, uh, let's say, cingulate cortex, right? Prefrontal cortex. Yeah. No, Pre yes. posterior. No, it was the posterior Right? So there's there's the prefrontal cortex, which is the youngest part of our brain. That's the part that goes offline when we get stressed out. Right. The posterior cingulate cortex is the part of the brain that gets quiet when we get out of our own way. Right. And and that's essentially there you what, go, cortex fans. That's what we're <laughs> but that's what we're looking to to generate in golf is 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 being not so. Uh, focused on the self, not always constantly. How am I doing? You know, all this self-referencing. So I want to get to something, let's say, concrete, is that when golfers are on the course, how do you suggest that they, you know, stay out of that mind-wandering, self-referencing self place? What can they, they do? Is it is it like a walking meditation, looking at the trees? I think what you're saying is how do golfers get more mindfulness in those moments of stress? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it's interesting because Thank we you. played with a bunch of different practices with the with the golf team at Yale and found some interesting things. And this is going to be somewhat individual for folks. So I can give kind of some highlights that folks can play with sure. and see what works for them. The first thing, of course, is to notice the reward that we get from getting all contracted and see how painful it is in that moment. This helps us recover much more quickly and shrug it off. Uh, we can't kind of suppress that, and I wouldn't. It's not about trying to change our thoughts or like make them go away. There's yeah. no making um, or trying here. You know, this is what Yoda said: "Do or do not. There is no try." So it's it's really about just noticing them and getting curious. Oh wow, what's this feel like right now? And we can even take a moment to pause and notice how much we're in our head versus embodied. I think that's the critical piece is, you know, if I'm constantly, if I'm yelling at myself and beating myself up, uh, it's, that's all a cognitive move. Uh, and I'm disembodied at that point. Right. At that moment, we can drop into our body and just get curious. Oh, what's it feel like when I beat myself up? Oh, oh, that's interesting. There's contraction, there's heat, there's tightness in my shoulders. 
and we can take those take just take a moment to kind of scan down through our body and see what those physical sensations are and get curious about them rather than you know try to make ourselves not beat ourselves up in fact it stops it it pulls the energy away from that habit loop of self-deprecation and uh, transforms it in a more skillful way to just drop back into our embodied awareness so that's a very simple thing that any of us can do and it, we don't have to wait to be on the golf course for that you know if we're yeah traffic, traffic yeah. we can just drop in and be like oh what's it feel like when i'm feeling that i'm going to be late for my meeting because i'm in a traffic jam that i wasn't anticipating uh, and the other thing that we found especially on the when folks were on the putting green was to simply kind of scan down uh, even they were finding that it was helpful just to scan from their shoulders down into their hands and just note whatever physical sensations they were feeling most predominantly as they scan down from their shoulders down into their upper arms to their elbows to their forearms to their wrists to their hands to their fingers as a way to kind of reground uh, before they put it. You know, it takes it, it can be done in as few as 10 seconds, sure. but it's just a way to reconnect and um it helps not feed those thoughts of, oh, am I going to miss the putt? You know, it's interesting wow. as we uh, wrap up that mindfulness in many forms usually brings us back to where we are in the world. Where we, where is, where's our body? And a lot of times mm-hmm. we're, when we're other, other focused, as we found, whether it's comedy, standing up in front of people, giving a speech or golfing, that uh, as we often say, you know, your, your body's in the present tense. And yes. when you can reconnect to it. It brings you back to the sort of now uh, versus a future or past. Dr. Judson Brewer, you're such a nice person. Oh, thank you. It's been very fun talking with both of you. Uh, what, a, what a pleasure. The book is called uh, The Craving Mind, From Cigarettes to Smartphones to Love, Why We Get Hooked and How We Can Break Bad Habits. And as uh, Timmy inferred there, I think we would love to have you from, you know, from time to time if we could pop in and get you back and talk about some more interesting stuff. That would be uh, amazing. I'd really enjoy that. Great. Thank you. All right, Dr. Judson. Thanks, thank Jeff. you, sir. Thank you. All the very best to you. And again, we'll say, we'll get, we're just going to hang up and you say bye. And you say bye and all that stuff. Bye. 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 There's Dr. Judson. There's Dr. Judson. Skype, that Skype boop. Look yeah. That. All right. Well, that was cool. That was really cool. Man, there. a lot of really good stuff. We got Yoda reference in there. Yeah, I like um, that. Disembodied. But in all seriousness. I do want to explain, though, that that um, noise a couple times you may have heard. I just, uh, well, that's just his yeah. microphone against right. uh, his clothing. And I, didn't, I, I hope it wasn't annoying. I, a couple times I just potted him down yeah, while you yeah. were asking a question. Um, yeah, it's very, very interesting. You know, a lot of our golfers, and I'm glad we got to touch on the, the, uh, the stand-up part. Because I'll tell you. One thing that's definitely showed me this winter doing as many sets as I have, that there's so much that we've talked about on the show separately together, a lot of the, you know, golf spiritual leader and stuff, um, <laughs> that applies to it. I'm telling you, it's a very applicable. Absolutely. And it's really been good for me because it's so easy, as you know from doing Toastmasters, it's so easy to contract about one's performance at the, at the most stressful thing human beings can do. And I, I say that, as he referenced, a lot of people 
identify public speaking as the most fearful thing yeah. because the consequences are so acute. And that's why I say with stand-up, imagine how much higher the stakes are because, you know, last night, I don't know what those people paid, but it was a lot of money. Mm-hmm. They raised thousands of dollars, and I was getting, you know, I was part of this thing. And so they, the, the consequences are hard to ignore. Right. Like, if I bogey the first hole, you and me and a couple guys were playing with it. But I walk out there last night, and in the first couple of minutes, if I'm not getting some laughs, it's a, I was up there for 20 one minutes. It's a long time to be up in front yeah. of people if it's not working. Yeah, but make a connection to a, uh, a, a a tour player. He's on. Say he's on TV. He's in contention. He's in. He's the story. So as he goes down the fairway and he pushes his drive out to the right, immediately he starts yeah. to think, "Oh, am I gagging it now on what, TV?" And what's everyone going to think? And and I think what really happens here again back to self referencing is that the reason public speaking is so scary is, is, is what people, it's all in their heads. It's all about what are they going to think? How am I going to be judged? Uh, oh, my gosh, is this my legacy? Am I, am I a chocoholic? Whatever, all of that. And then not only that, that's the anticipation, but you've had a recent, recent experience. You know, you're on stage, and now you're thinking, okay, I'm doing this thing, and how are they feeling about me And in this real-time moment? Yeah, and so it's applicable to everything. Whether you're a golfer, stand-up, you're giving a sales presentation somewhere, you're, um, you are performing. I don't care who you are. You could be a controller. You could be like a janitor somewhere. When you're performing, when you start to self-reference and think, you, as Dr. Judd said, you disembody. You, you, know, you are no longer aware of what's going on with you. And that's why I love where he was going. But that with, phrase you just used, disembody, it, you, be, you, come, you come away from where you are. Exactly. And that's why I loved what he was talking about in terms of doing things like on the putting green. He's not talking about make sure you take the putter straight back, make sure you accelerate, all that stuff. It's no. Taking, taking, a re, taking a scan of your body from shoulders to, say, hips and just what's going on there. Then you know what's going on in your body. You know, you said something interesting about uh, how tour players react. You know, it's inter- one of the things about whether you look, you know, look at Dustin Johnson. For a long time, you know, very capable, not journeyman, but sort of budding superstar. And you think, well, why all of a sudden in the last 20 months or 15 months has he elevated to number one in the world? And I'm going to tell you part of the journey is to become comfortable with the attention. Right. And what I mean by that is you watch somebody that's, you know, fairly new on tour, hasn't had a lot of coverage, and all of a sudden he's in contention on, say, Saturday afternoon or Sunday. And they, and they know it because all oh, of a sudden yes. the, the crowds are bigger. All of a sudden the guys from the Golf Channel are there. The, ca- the microphone the micro- boom guys the boom behind guys you. There. All that. And, and so I, I believe, and you could, you know, I, whether you concur, I think you'll agree that what happens to those guys is they have to become comfortable right. with you get, that. So you get your reps in. And then, so yeah. Dustin has become more, even though he won, you know, we're not talking about a rookie, but what's happened to him is he's become more comfortable with global attention. Yeah. Because that's a different vibe. Oh, yeah. You know, you did a, a Toastmasters competition recently, um, and we had talked about you getting ready for it, and I was excited for your uh, your participation. And, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a comfort that's different than giving a talk to a couple people you know, at a let's say a golf situation. All right. of a sudden, now you're a little bit out of sight of your 
so imagine now doing stand up's a little different level of comfort and doing it in front of 20 people is different than doing it in front of 220 people and then so on and so forth and all it is i think whatever journey you're on is becoming more comfortable in a hotter spotlight right so you don't what do you call it disembody or disengage or other body, what was the phrase? Disembodied. Disembodied. Right. You become more comfortable in your own body in those situations. Right. Well, well so much of what uh, Dr. Judd was talking about is awareness, really experiencing what's going on for you. And we, yeah, we kind of hit the throwing the club thing. We kind of beat that to death. But there's all <laughs> kinds of beat things. Beat many clubs to death. Yeah. But there's all kinds of things that golfers do when they get triggered on the golf course. Mm-hmm. Uh, for some, they sulk. You know, guys, they start, you know, they just start walking, you know, like they're on the on the death march. Yeah, pouting, sulking. Yeah, and then some, they immediately get thrust into their heads and go like, what am I doing wrong? And they go through the Rolodex of swing thoughts. We all tend to have these things that we start, start to do. and But if we're not aware of them, then we're thinking, thinking, thinking. And we're, as we say, we're disembodied. We don't even know what's going on in our body. And that's when we get hijacked. And we start hitting these shots. Like, where did that come from? Well, you know, you don't know that you're like strangling mm-hmm. the club. You got you're you're hanging onto that so hard you got white knuckles going. Yeah, we you're talked n- about this. I'm sorry to yeah, just you're not hijack aware. Your, we talked about this. I think a week ago. Well, you're hijacking me. Uh, well, no, my just, I, just, I, I need to get in there. All right. Um, but what we talked about a couple of weeks ago is the idea. You know, I, I said we were we were talking about on your worst hole of the day how fast things seem to happen. <sighs> Absolutely. And what Coach Tim is talking about there is that. Just a little takeaway before we finish is that feeling of things rapidly spiraling. He even said it, the death spiral. Yes. And it happens to, listen, it happens to me on stage sometimes. At one point last night, you know, I I sort of felt like things were going well and I started touching on a subject and it completely tanked. Mm. I'm talking people going, ooh. And I, now it was a pretty, you know, and I've been, by that point, I've been on stage for 10 minutes. They laughed hard at a couple things and I made a comment and they went, ooh. And I went, well, whoa, whoa. I said, hang on, Barry. Because I was in Barry, Ontario. I go, don't leave me now, Barry. Don't worry. I said, because I could see that, ooh, they're going away. But I had to kind of bring myself back to the present because I was like, well, I thought that would go better. My point is, when you're banking in the middle of your quadruple bogey that day, what Timmy's talking about is just becoming. Try, and I would say this as well, just try and slow down because we all know that feeling of you're going to the next hole and you're running eight down your card and you really can't remember the blur of it all. (laughs) Exactly. And that's that, I guess the takeaway today is try and halt it. Yeah, and it'd be, but I come back to this all the time, is be aware. If you're not aware of what's going on, awareness is the first step to taking any kind of, of step to, First change, and if you're not aware of what's going on, well, then you're done. And I think, you know, and you're, like same way, you're not aware. If you're not aware of what's going on because you're uh, addicted to smoking or addicted to alcohol or whatever, and and if you do those things despite knowing the consequences, wow. Well, but you know, if you, you there's no smoker listening that doesn't know that smoking's bad for you, right? Um, and there's no golfer listening that doesn't know that some of those behaviors are not serving them very well. Nice, very you nice. know, me included. I mean, yeah. you know, I'm going to start golfing tomorrow for the, you know, the 2017 season and I have Sweet. to constantly remind myself of the work that we've done, the work I've done and I have to, you know, set intentions. And for me especially, it's it's really important. And I know I used last night as an example, but I my intention was a bit murky. And so my results reflected it. 
Yeah. I have a, another big show tonight with a lot of people I know coming to see it. So now let's talk about the layering of, you know, potential pressure. It's like not only am I going on stage, I'm doing a long set. People are paying money. I'm getting paid and a bunch of people I know are going to be there. But in the end, it's like you said, it's like, all right, he, maybe Judd said it. It's like, this is, you know, if I completely fail tonight, am I a failure? No, of no. course not. What am I going to learn from it? Well, I'm going to learn that, you know, sometimes it just doesn't go like you hope or you want, but what can you learn from that experience? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And uh, just on that note, um, so Dr. Judson Brewer's book, The Craving Mind, um, I've, I'm through my, I'm reading it for the second time. Uh, I just find if you're interested in this type of stuff, we're talking about, uh, whether it's addictions and ensure helping your golf game. Uh, this is one of the best books I've read in a long time. And that's uh, quite the endorsement. Tim O'Connor's latest blogs available at O'ConnorGolf.ca. Uh, once again, uh, the subject is me. <laughs> Um, I just said to Timmy this morning before we started, he goes, okay, you got to get off me. It's becoming uh, – no, I really appreciate it. Well, really, and it's, it's ironic that the blog is about intentions. Yeah. Yeah, we got in, you got in, and, and a lot of what we talked about was being contracted versus um, being in a state of expansion, being, being expanded. That sounds so 60s. Oh, no, but let uh, me ask you – to Pink Floyd, I'm a gumma man. I am so expanded. Um. Yeah, I think, you know what, I think you'd benefit from some expansion. Let me help you. <laughs> Let me help you, you out. You know a guy? I know a guy. What would you say to someone like me uh, that is a, you know, pretty high energy, high performance guy? What What's a good intention? Because I, 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 I know what my intentions are when I walk on stage. But now having this conversation, what's your gut tell you that what's, what's an intention for someone in my position to expand versus contract. We're talking about golf cars, life in general. Going on stage. Going on stage. I would say one intention could be that you are going to maintain a connection with the audience all the way through. As soon as you step out there, eye-to-eye contact with a couple of people in the front row. How's it going? They, You connect with them. They... You might ask them how they're doing. You know, we've talked about this mm-hmm. a bit. And that through the audience, through the course of the evening, you find other people. Someone's in the fifth row, the seventh row, and, the, and then the back. And, and, and you genuinely look at, at when you say a joke, like, how did they respond? And if they respond, someone responds in a really good way, like, oh, you like that. Mm-hmm. You know, or uh, that yeah, type. And, and I like really, that. really reading the audience and connection. Cause, no, what you said about maintaining connection all the way through right. is something that I can directly, ins- I can do that. You have 100% can control con- of thank that. You. That's what I was looking for. Yeah. I can control that. Their reaction, I can't control. 100%. But what you just said, yeah, that's what I want to do. And, and it's, I, have a, another, I have a couple that I, I, I also use. I also feel grateful. I try yeah. and think, okay, what a great situation. I mean, I was really, I wasn't that nervous last night. There's a, there was a lot of people on the show. There's probably seven or eight comics. We're all milling about backstage. And as it got closer to my time, uh, I started to get a little quieter. And I sort of wrote down a couple things. But what I also forgot last night is how grateful I am to do it. Oh, is, because I, I think that is uh, a good place for me because I can control that. When I get so caught, and again, I could tell last night from the first 45 seconds. In the problem with stand-up is I couldn't, I, I, I try, I mean, I, again, by any standards, if, I, if you listen to it, you'd hear big laughs. But I'm pretty 
you know, I know in my body how I feel. Not being critical, like, oh, you know, I just didn't do very well. Yeah. I just know how it felt to me. Because everyone congratulated me when I was done. And a couple people on Facebook, man, that was so funny. Uh, people came up to me out of the audience to tell me how much they enjoyed it. But I'm telling you, I, could, I knew in my heart that wasn't what I wanted. Yeah, which is not dissimilar to uh, you're playing golf and you hit a drive and... And so it was, wow, great drive. And you went, oh, that's a bit heely. <laughs> that, was, that was off the toe. No, we all know that guy. Dude, have you ever hit the center of your club ever? <laughs> exactly. I played with a guy for years. We used to kid him all the time. Like, because every drive, and he'd kill it, right? Every drive was off the toe, off the heel, yeah, high yeah, in the yeah. face. High in the face? You just hit it 280. I don't care what you hit, where you hit it. <laughs> I love, But I loved how you, I don't know where you're talking about, on air or off air, uh, a couple weeks ago, that you went on stage and you saw... Uh, a father and his right. daughter there, yes. and you could have so just connected right and gone to your father-daughter father material. Stuff. Yeah, no, that's which, right. You know, I know the situation. I told Tim that. Yeah, I went on stage at Yuck Yucks in Toronto, and it was uh, t- I was doing twelve minutes. So it's a lot. It doesn't sound like a lot, but at, uh, on these showcase clubs, it's a big. It's a long set. Mostly, you get to do six or seven. And my friend watched me, and I did pretty good again that night. But he said to me when I came off stage, he goes, "Why didn't when when you walked on?" And you saw that there was a dad and his kid my, my, in my wheelhouse. Why did you wait so long to go to that material? And he says, I'll tell you why. Because it wasn't scheduled till the fifth or sixth minute. Right. And he said, that's not being mindful. Yeah. He said, if you had gone right to that material, then it seems like made up on the spot, which we all know it's not. But he said, that would have been such a bigger connection. Because all of a sudden, now people will go, wow, he just started talking to that dad and daughter. And then he had some stuff about his daughters. And Wow. And, and you t- would have been expanded, expanded. even expanded rather than contracted and trying to do the right thing and sticking to the script. And this is the way I do it. Um, no, that's and exactly it's the same it. thing on the first tee or in, in a golf tournament when you're or anywhere you're playing the golf. When you're trying to do the right thing, when you're trying, you know, this is what my coach told me to do or this is what I got to do. That's when you're... That's it's contraction, when, yeah. Yeah, you're in a state where you just cannot access your full abilities. Here's just, a great example. You can't achieve flow. You're, you're on a hole, and your expected behavior, or the golf behavior, is that you hit the fairway, hit the green, two putt for par. But as soon as we're off that script, we're in the trees... And something happens to us physiologically and psychologically. We think, well, this isn't how it's supposed to be. Exactly. And, and, and why can't you then focus on the play part, which is if I get this back in play, I can get the next one on or near the green. I could always chip that in or put it in for par. But, but it's, it's the taking us off the script part right. that derails us and, 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 and affects us in such a negative way. And it, it's, I, I tell you what, it's been, even though I haven't touched a golf club all winter, other than that little trip I was on, I think I've learned a lot this winter about how my behavior as a golfer is similar to as a, you know, as a performer and the pitfalls that you, know, mm-hmm. you can get. Because I spent a lot of time in my golf swing as a comic. I spent a lot of time writing and rehearsing and learning and massaging. But when you go on stage, all that has to go away. Yep. You just have to play, and sometimes it doesn't go as you planned. And you just be. All right, I like you that. just be. Thank you, Tim. Hey, speaking of being uh, masters this week, and oh yeah, do we do want to do? do want, should we do another couple? I was going to close the show. Hang on, okay. Here's five minutes on the masters. Get okay. set for it. Here we go. <laughs> Here's five minutes. All Swing right. thoughts on the masters. As of uh, we were recorded this on Saturday, April first, so we won't be with you for. 
I guess till after the Masters. Masters, yeah. yeah. Uh, Both of us came into the uh, studio today uh, armed with the knowledge Tiger Woods will not be playing the Masters. No surprise there. Yeah, it's too bad. Yeah, it is too bad. I was going to tell you before we started recording. I wonder what will happen first. Uh, all of Tiger's hair will be gone or he wins again. <laughs> that's the yeah. that's what the odds makers should be doing. What will happen first? Tiger Woods returns to the winner's circle or he has any hair left on top of his head. Uh, who's the, uh, I guess Dustin Johnson is the uh, favorite. He's uh, I've got the odds in front of me. He's the oh, okay. uh, favorite there. Dustin Johnson is uh, favored over Jordan Spieth. And third is uh, Rory. Guess He'll never guess who the odds makers have uh, put as the fourth um, best. It's at, at, so Dustin's 5 to 1. This person's 18 to 1. You'd never guess it. And I wouldn't either. It's not Jason Day. And it's not Phil Mickelson. Who Give me are, a hint. Give me a hint. Came second to Dustin Johnson last week. Oh, 22-year-old Spaniard named John Rom. Oh, yeah, Rom. Oh, that guy's amazing. <laughs> Jeez. I don't even get it anymore. I'm watching him play last Sunday. He hit it 430 yards. I don't care if it was downwind, downhill, down, whatever. Yeah, exactly. It's ridiculous. Oh, yeah, that, guy, that guy's amazing. He's a beast. He was five down. You want to talk about swing thoughts. The kid is five down after eight holes. Yeah. And hangs in. Hangs in to lose one down. Yeah, amazing. I didn't see it. I was away. Remarkable. Yeah, but that that guy is going to be around for a long time. Holy, his uh, his agent is uh, Phil Mickelson's brother, who is actually his golf coach at uh, the University of Arizona. Absolutely. Yeah, that's cool. So, what do you think? What do you so? Give us a uh, little thoughts. Give us some Coach Tim thoughts. Dustin Jordan, Rory, John Rom, Hideki Matsuyama, and Jason Day. All the way in this uh, one, two, three, four, five, six. Well, I would. It's always hard. To say. It's always a fool's game uh, to try and pick who can win a, a major. But if anyone's in a good spot, I easy to say Dustin. The way he just he hits the ball so long, hits it high, which uh, you need to do to hold the greens at Augusta. Um, pure, pure putting stroke, uh, which you need on those greens. Um, Everybody's more up and down. But it's always hard to say. Like Jason's mm-hmm. mom is is battling cancer. That's a tough spot for him to be. Uh, Rory is always mercurial. You never know where he's going to be. Um, and uh, but I also think that um, the newbies, guys who are first time around, uh, it'll be fun to watch them like Rom. But I, 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 Fuzzy is the only guy who ever won in his rookie um, appearance there. Uh, so I'm just going to use that as a segue to get to uh, Adam Hadwin, mm-hmm. uh, one of three Canadians. So Mike Weir, of course, having won in uh, 2003, the champion there. He'll be back. Um, Mackenzie Hughes, who won um, earlier this year, got himself in. And Adam Hadwin, who won. And Hadwin, man, if anybody's got a good shot, too, is a, I'd say is a dark horse. He'd be a good one to pick. Because um, he's such a good putter, you were saying. Yeah, he's sixth. He's sixth. And uh, my friend John Gordon wrote a column recently saying that's kind of the Canadian curse is uh, great ball strikers right from George Knudsen to Moe to DeLatte, Dan Halverson, but uh, not so great getting in the hole. Adam Hadwin, man, he's solid. Solid, solid, solid. I'm trying to find something I had uh, saved for the show today, and I just remembered. I, I can't find it, but it was a pretty interesting article in uh, – and on the Golf Channel, because this weekend, or sorry, next weekend, is the 20th anniversary of Tiger Woods winning in 97. 
Oh, yeah. Just a couple quick highlights. You know, you know, we often will remember the effect that Arnold Palmer had on the PGA Tour in the early 60s. The, the next biggest impact was not Nicholas. It's Tiger Woods. Absolutely. In, in 1997, there, the purse on the PGA Tour was $70 million. There were nine players that year that uh, made $2 million on tour. The average purse was uh, whatever it was. I, I wish I had it in front of me. But the, so what Tiger Woods did to that tour is... Um, Within a few years, the tour, excuse me, the purses were two hundred and seventy million. The last year in twenty sixteen, there were ninety players that made over a million dollars. Wow! And, and all of it is due to that moment in time that Tiger Woods burst onto the scene. And as they said uh, in the article, it was great because it was a bunch of guys like Davis Love and Ernie Els and Colin Montgomery, guys that were there when Tiger Woods took over. And in fact, there's a great quote from. Um, might be Johnny Miller, might be Tom Watson. Who, by the way, Tom Watson in 1997, at the age of 40-something, finished fourth at the Masters. Oh, yeah. Tom well, Kite was second. I know. You see, well, you see, at the Masters, has always got the uh, the legends. You know, Bernard Langer, I think, was there last year. Yeah. Jack, uh, you know, obviously in 86, was it? Right. So he was 46 and 86. In 97, he was 57 or 56, yeah, yeah. whatever. Um but what's interesting is there's a great quote, one of those guys saying that uh, somewhere, somewhere on the back nine on the second day when he took the lead, he said uh, something like he took the lead in the back nine and held it for the next 12 years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it yeah. was awesome. Well, one of the things that to speak to that around Tiger and that what the, the effect he had was well, it's absolutely amazing. So he's young, he's talented. And he's a uh, African-American. Yeah. And I was at that Masters. I was at the uh, at the Masters in 97 when he, when he won. And um, it was electric. Mm-hmm. Holy cow. I, you could just tell this history was being made today. And the um, electric is the best way I have to describe in terms of the way the air was. Um, when I knew it was happening, entire, you know, he's got the big lead coming down. Um, the stretch. I went out to the, um, you know, usually when you're covering a tournament, uh, you, you got to watch it on TV, unfortunately, so you can don't miss everything. But I went out, and all the servers, all of course whom are black, yep, are outside, and they're on the balconies of uh, of the Augusta Clubhouse, and it was amazing. A lot of them had tears in their eyes. Uh, I mean, because Augusta. You know, Georgia, symbol of the old South, of discrimination and, and all of that. And here was Tiger breaking through the first uh, man of color to, to win not only a major, but to do it there. Holy cow. That was amazing. And, and to put a, a sort of a finer point on that as a, uh, as a cultural change, in 1977, 20 years earlier, there were 12 African-Americans that participated on the PGA Tour. In 2016... There was one. Yeah. Well, so he made a lot of changes. Well, uh, but it is it is. But not at the professional level, right? But you still you, you got so you do have have men of color. Vijay Singh and Tony. But, it, but an African American. That's that. Yeah, yeah, In the yeah. article, they make the point that the yeah. only actual African American on tour is uh, Harold Varner, mm, because yes, Tiger's right. not on tour anymore. Yeah. But on the upside, the first T program has introduced millions. Of children to the game of all colors, yeah. and that's his. Uh, you know his his impact. Uh, those are just some of the numbers, but his impact on the game will be 
talked about for years to come. He's still he's still the guy who moves the needle. If he came back out in a tournament, he'd, he'd be the most talked about guy there for sure. The next time you see Tiger Woods win a tournament, he will be completely bald. <laughs> All right, Timmy O'Connor, nice job today. University of Wealth fun. Griffins. There's the coach, kids. Thanks, man. Coach Tim and, of course, the Humble and Fred Show Monday through Friday on Sirius XM. Uh, if you're a uh, friend of mine on Facebook, you can find out where I'm going to be doing stand-up, which I'm going to be doing a lot less now that uh, Golf Howard is about to un- <laughs> Priorities. Oh, there's a new obsession. Ah, uh, gosh. All right, kids. Have a great week and uh, enjoy. Uh, thanks to TaylorMade and ClubLink. There's never been a t- better time to join. All right. Bye.